I am Doug Friedman. I am Meredith Levy. And this is Your Mental Breakdown. What is this? Your Mental Breakdown or Inside Out? Your Mental Inside Out Breakdown. <laughs> this is a little combo. This is a new thing, That's right. actually. That's right. Speaking of combo things... <laughs> Yes. You know what I you know what I almost miss? What? I haven't had junk food in like I don't know, a decade maybe, like fast food. Yeah. But I used to love getting the like the combo meals. Like Just I, any. I miss oh yeah. I'm a big fan. Like, oh yeah, I'll get a number two. I mean, you can say that almost anywhere and you're gonna get something good. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was I was big like the McDonald's, the Taco Bell. Mm, me all too. Over that. Ugh. I don't think I've had fast food in twenty years, probably. And McDonald's is freaking good. Mm. Oh, man. I remember growing up, lived with my mom most of the time during the week. My dad would take us on weekends and we'd go to McDonald's. It was like the, the treat. Like after eating health food at my mom's all week. Oh, yeah. Home cooked meals. We'd stop in and I'd get, as a kid, get a Big Mac, large fries, a Coke, and a shake. And I would dip oh, the fries God. in the shake. Oh, so good. And then you were all <laughs> cracked out after for like four hours. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Oh, I miss those cracked out days. <laughs> mm, now I'm hungry. Thanks a lot, dog. You know what I also miss? What? Buttered movie theater popcorn. Oh, yum. You know what yeah. else I miss? Going what? to see a movie in a theater. Jesus. That's right. I can't wait for that. Yeah, that will be nice. It'll be weird. It'll be different. You know what else I can't wait for? <laughs> <laughs> now that we're on this... What else? What else? I can't wait to not wear masks. I'm just not, I'm never, I just can't get used to it. Like, it's just, I walk around and I just look at everyone. I'm like, this is so weird. It's weird. It's weird. It's weird. It is totally. I mean, that's one thing, like with the fires that we've had out here, the air quality has been so bad. Oh my God. I had to wear a mask just to walk my dog outside. And like, well, at least the pandemic has me used to wearing a mask. It's true. You (laughs) live like right Near the fires, right? Or near the oh, yeah. fires that are in LA over near you. <laughs> right. <laughs> you live mean, near the, the fires Northern that California are near you. Fires. There's so many fires right now. It's, it's, I, I mean, know. literally, the, the Pacific Northwest is burning, like on I know, fire. It's so sad. Yeah. I, for the first time in a long time, like, I kind of want to get the hell out of LA. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> Love it or leave it. Love it or leave it. <laughs> I don't know. I get it. No, I get it. I do. I would like to have a ranch somewhere, but still be here and then go there sometimes. It's tough because I'm I'm a city boy. We were both born and raised here. And the thought of being somewhere like for me, it'd be somewhere out in the mountains. Like I'd love to go to Colorado and be in the mountains there. That'd be fantastic. I don't know that I could be away from a city and be all right. Well, let's define what kind of city LA is because it's certainly not a city like (laughs) New York or Chicago or anything like that. That's like downtown LA, which if you're not from here or you haven't been here, we don't, that's not a place where many people, I mean, some people, but we don't live there and we don't go there. There's no tall buildings around us. Everything's very spread out. So Doug living in the city, he lives in a city of mountains is where he lives. <laughs> I live on the outskirts, but and what I love is I can drive five minutes and be right in the thick of everything. And by the thick of everything, again, 
Right. There's, no tall, <laughs> there's no tall buildings or subways or anything like right. that. LA style. That's right. Yeah. Which is, yeah. and I love, I love the idea that in a city, pretty much anything that you want is right there at your fingertips. Like yeah. that's, that luxury is fantastic, but yeah, we're there's used a to trade off for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's the density, the sheer density. And by that, I mean, a lot of people right on top of each other and a lot of people that are dense. <laughs> Judgment, really ding, tough. ding, ding. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, totally. Have you ever lived outside of LA? Yes. I've Where lived on live? the entire West Coast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've lived in Santa Barbara. I've lived in San Diego. I've lived in LA and I lived in. <laughs> Have you ever lived outside of California? I've lived and I've lived in Sausalito, which is up near San Francisco. And Still I've lived California. in Spain for a year. That counts. What about Venice? You've lived in Venice, but that's Venice, California. California. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know though. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm feeling rural. I wonder like listeners out there, if there's a sense that people that aren't in a city, if they are glad that they're not in a city or still feel like, no, I want to get to a city. If that's even a thing. I mean, that's just my younger interpretation of what my friends that grew up in rural areas wanted to get to a city and always looked at the city as the big thing. But I don't know that it sounds so appealing right now. Like New York, Manhattan sounds awful to me. Well, that's always sounded, I'm phobic of a place like that because that in my mind is a city. Like LA, again, in my mind is not a city. Like I live at the beat, like there's nothing cityish about it to me. I mean, I get what you're saying, Doug, but. Manhattan scares the shit out of me. Chicago, San Francisco. Oh my God. I'm trying to drive there. Absolutely not. Not an option. (laughs) Like any place that I'm so scared to drive or by the way, where people really don't drive, that's a city to me. Right. DC. Yeah. Although DC had a lot of nature in it. Like I love. Yeah. Oh no. I love DC actually. Yeah. Other than the fact that you're living in a swamp. It's, it's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> dc has yeah. the Ho- hope diamond who doesn't love that does it really yes the hope diamond lives there in the natural history museum i think oh, one wow. of the museums no it's idea. so lovely you must see it don't be surprised i mean we've been virtual for so long although we have gotten together a couple of times but we've been virtual for so long doing this virtual with our clients I'm like what's to stop me from being in a mountain somewhere as long as yeah. there's wi-fi Totally. Right? Yeah. I was in Tahoe for a couple of weeks. You were in somewhere for a while. In Boulder. Maybe. Yeah. Boulder. Yeah. I, I would do that again. Absolutely. We could go anywhere except for, I don't want to fly. So meh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anywhere you can drive and it doesn't rain, you're there. And I don't like to drive far places. So, so I'll just stay here. You're very much an LA gal. I am. Although would you say you're a Valley girl? Would you say go fuck yourself? <laughs> I don't say that as a bad thing. You know what's funny is I just saw a few days ago they had a, a Fast Times at Ridgemont High table read. Oh my god, I heard about that. Right, right, with some incredible actors like like Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston, right. uh, Sean Penn, of course, but not playing Spicoli. He was playing another character, and uh, Shia LaBeouf played uh, Spicoli. Yeah. <laughs> right. I haven't seen it. I'd love to see it, but that's, we grew up with that movie. Oh my God. Valley Girl, also one of the best movies ever. Right. With uh, right. Nicholas Kate? No. Is yep. it Nicholas Kate? Yeah, 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 yeah. So good. 
Wow. People are like, what the fuck are they talking about right now? We don't know. Sorry, guys. We're old. We're old and we're reminiscing. It happens. Speaking of old and reminiscing, um, <laughs> <laughs> what you guys are going to hear today is not uh, a session with Drew. It's going to be a session with an older client of mine uh, who's coming back to kind of tell his story of what he's been through and how therapy's worked for him. So you'll get to hear about Wyatt, not his real name. We have changed it to protect his confidentiality. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll tell you a little bit about him so you know who's coming in. This is a client that I started with in August of 2013. At the time, he was 37 years old. He's now 44. And back then, you know, he came in and was, he'll tell you, you'll hear him kind of recap why he was coming in and what was going on. He was somebody that was dealing with a lot of stress and tension and difficulties at work and things that were coming out in some of his interpersonal relationships were starting to bleed over. And he was just realizing that a lot of how he grew up and some of the things that shaped his, his worldview were affecting him now. And he wanted to do something about that and didn't know how to do that. And that's why he came to therapy. And in the beginning with him, it was similar to what you guys have heard with Drew, just learning his story and what he'd been through, like his mom and dad getting separated uh, in his early 20s. Uh, one of his best friends committed suicide after the two of them had a fight, mm. which was really impactful. You'll hear him talk about that a bit. He had a girlfriend for a couple of years, went away to college, and then came home and literally found her having sex with someone else. My I mean, oh my. All of this stuff, right. All of this stuff creating in him this worldview that I'm not good enough. And it was really difficult for him to recognize that, but incredible to do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy with him where we got to rewrite his narrative. And you guys probably know, you've heard us say CBT enough, that that sort of cognitive restructuring that you can do in therapy that helps a client really build the awareness, discover, and challenge, and then modify their their sort of negative, unhelpful ways of thinking so right. they can shift their worldview. You will hear him talk about how he did that, and then we'll probably jump back on and, and let you know he's going to talk about some health stuff that came up for him. We'll give you a little bit of him now, and then we'll we'll jump back in and check in with you about it. So sit back, Chill out or don't sit back. Keep walking. Keep doing dishes. <laughs> keep doing whatever you want to do. That's right. We'll be right here and we'll be back at you in a few. What brought me in to see you initially? Just the physical manifestation being driven by emotional and spiritual fears and anxieties really driven by a strong habit of negative self-talk and negative self-image mm. is that you kind of get these learned behaviors yep. that, and I remember you saying this to me very early on in our sessions was the reason that you developed those is because they worked at a certain point in your life. Right. Right. And in my family, one was a lot of reaction of anger. And was there a consequence of that? Yeah, well, there's a tons of consequences. One was just general unhappiness. I think fear that they were trying to control, they couldn't control it, so they got angry about it. It was negative, super negative. And it's something also that a lot of the anger was pointed at me in my household. But you know, you combine that with no front teeth. I was not 
more than 105 pounds until I was about right. 16 years old. I had freckles. I had big curly hair. My mom would not cut as a kid. I had skin tags on my eyelid. You name it. Yeah. I had something that could be picked on. I think because there was so much anger in my household, right. resentment and jealousy, I was a precocious kid when it came to standardized tests and schoolwork and stuff like that. And so as a young kid, when I'd come home and bring back, I tested in the 99.9th percentile in math, my mom would go, oh, shh, don't tell your don't sister. Tell your, yep. How come your A didn't go on the fridge? Exactly. Yeah. And it was one thing after another for years and years and years right. of, shh, no. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I necessarily took, internalized it as something to be ashamed of. It was more of, I don't deserve to, one of the ways that I deeply subconsciously created a really shitty rocky ski trail right in my brain was it's bad to excel i got all twisted in my circuitry and wiring of that and there was another part of me that really wanted to excel layer that on with negative self-talk that i my parents had a habit of which created fears which created anxiety Right. And uh, just having a lot of anxiety about things that when you look at it now, we're like hilariously irrational. But But you didn't know that. I mean, you were just formulating that. Exactly. And and even talking about that, not just the anger or frustration, but the fear, the anxiety, the embarrassment, the guilt, the shame. I mean, it was imprinting in you. Other people will feel bad if you do well. Yes. You know, there was a cause and effect of that. Yes. And so doing well is kind of as a negative thing. Right. 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 Someone's always going to do poorly if I do well. Someone's exactly. going to suffer if I do well. My achievement is somebody else's loss. So it creates two things. So my success and achievement doesn't get recognized and validated. So I don't have that positive feedback experience. Correct. Right. And it creates an incorrect cause and effect that that person's misery or suffering is my fault for doing well. Exactly. That's like the human condition. You have environmental things that come up and my environment in grand scheme of things was top sure. 85th percentile. Yeah, it was great. It. Yeah. It still created some pathology, some yep. pathways yep. for you. As we were saying, when you came to me, this was a lot of where you came from and you carried this over. It was really affecting you in terms of you were in that mentality. You talk about it very, very objectively and can see it very well now and very clearly now. Yeah. But then you were still in it. And then there's a lot of things that happened throughout my life and in my 20s, especially, that further reinforced my frustration, my sadness. A seminal thing that happened to me in my life is my one of my best friends from high school came home from college one summer. We were both back at my hometown a week back from college after sophomore year. He was a super competitive guy. I was a super competitive guy. He was quick to anger. I was quick to anger. We're playing basketball after not seeing each other for months. He ends up fouling me hard, throws baseball at my head. We get in a fist fight. We get in a bloody fist fight. I get the upper hand. He storms off. His ex-girlfriend calls me and says, I'm very worried. Can you call him to make sure he's okay? I went and said, no, because I was angry at him. I figured he was even more angry at me. The next morning, I figured out he committed suicide the night before. Terrible, critical 
thing that I carried around, I'm still practicing getting out of, which is that was my fault. Created a whole host of other behaviors and thought patterns and all that, that boy, if I do good, someone else is going to do bad. If I hurt anybody in the slightest bit, or I, I, I can't even unpack that. It's like, there was a lot, a lot of negative self-talk yeah, and other emotions that I had a very difficult time processing. I mean, it's that same negative feedback loop. I do yeah. well, someone does bad. I got the upper hand in the fight and yeah. then he killed himself. Like, holy yeah. shit, there isn't a starker contrast of consequence, of cause and effect than yeah. that. And that fed into all of what we were just talking about, the early imprinting and what you were learning, yeah. right? Yeah. And boom, there it is. Yeah. And fuck, that's, that's really impactful. And you, you did carry that and still i think i still yeah still and I, I always will and in a sadness i will always carry for so many years i attributed myself as the as the cause, as the cause. yeah to the effect that was a suicide right in reality there was 99 other things that were going on in this poor guy's life that led to that point but i spent a lot of time a lot of energy processing that blaming myself, feeling guilty. Yeah. 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 Of course we always carry that around, but with it, we have more understanding around it. Something that we've talked about before, compassion for self, not just compassion for him and what he was going through. Because if it wasn't after that basketball game, it might've been after a concert a couple of weeks later, it could have been, could have been. And for you, that cause and effect thing was huge because that was, that was already there for you. We can have the compassion for him. We can also have the compassion for you. It's just a tragic, sad story. And the, and really, to me, yeah. but really what's sad is just that my friend doesn't have a chance to, to be alive. And uh, yeah. to come out of the other end of that depression and come out of the other end of that, to go out and realize and just to experience more life. And that's it's just tragic and it's just sad. There's something I like to talk about in these terms, the rippling effect. Yeah. Right? How his life affected others. It ripples out, right? Yeah. To me, sometimes that's how we live on and carry on, is that that pebble that hits the the pond is gone, but the ripples that it creates spread out and keep going and affect everything. Yeah. And it's affected you, sometimes negatively, but overall in a positive way, because you can look at this and learn from it and see what it was and see how you've thought about it, how you think about it now. Yep. And, you know, it, it does shape us. And it shapes us in a way where we get to have, I think, some conscious choice over how it's shaping us and what we do with that. I agree with that. And it's something that I carry with me now and it's a huge part of my life. It's just another thing that's given me perspective that I hope helps me in my communication, you know, and relations with other people. I think what we were doing and why... You took to the CBT work very quickly. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because we were changing how you thought about things yep. consciously. And there was also, it was, there was a lexicon that I could go out and use, right? Right. To go out and describe what I had felt and sensed, but didn't have form to. That's where it's like these, the behaviors that I had, the habits of thinking certain ways, 
It's about recognizing that lexicon. Oh, right. There's a name for this. Yeah. Oh, that's a thing. Yes. And it helps me bring form to my behavior Right. for me to understand, help me metaphorically pick my head up on the shitty ski trail and go, oh, yeah, damn, right. I am on the shitty ski trail, right? This is what's happening. Yeah. Recognizing something's not comfortable, something's not working, something's not right. A lot of people, they question it without actually looking for the answer and talking about it. Yep. They then just beat themselves up, right? Precisely. For me, yeah. that was one of my habits. Yep. I yep. beat myself up about everything. And I was very, very fearful of a lot of things that created anxiety was a way to pick myself up and get myself out of that bad situation is right. beat myself up. And, and that's actually that, yeah, keeping totally that negative, negative feedback exactly. going. Yeah, it's, it's, not a, it's a vicious shooting. cycle, not a virtuous cycle. I mean, I didn't have a bad life. My 20s, I had a lot of frustration and a lot of unhealthy behaviors. And they weren't all unhealthy, but I drank a lot more than I wanted to. I mistreated people that I didn't want to mistreat. I got in a lot of conflict with work. I had a lot of stress and anxiety, which I think took a big toll on my body. And I worked through reading a lot of self-improvement books, going to some seminars. If you're not doing your own work to find what your root is, if you're not doing that, you're missing something and you're just going to replace a behavior or take a behavior away. You're not totally. necessarily going to find yourself. Yeah, yeah, right? totally. And if you still have got a lot of those learned behaviors dictating your life and those learned behaviors are not authentic to you, then it's not going to be good. But all those things are part of my journey. And then coming to see you, yeah, was laying the foundation for a framework slash lexicon, CBT, sure. which is so valuable the habit of putting in the work of working with you. Plenty of times I was like, oh, fucking hell. I do not want to sit down for 45 <laughs> to you know, 60 minutes to talk about myself tonight. Yep. But fuck it. Sack up. Do it. It's good. It's healthy. Right. Keep on going. And sticking with it. I guess in my story, is kind of like, okay, well, then there's a period if there's girlfriends come and gone, there's jobs come and gone, there's family situations come and gone. Yes, some of those relationships, some of the work, some of the family stuff gave you practice ground because you now had these new tools and this new way of thinking, right? Yeah. In effect, getting to test yourself and yeah. not, not test yourself in a bad way, but, but really get the experience, right? Through relationships, totally. through finding yeah. what it would be like to consciously choose things, to recognize, got to have some of those experiences. The smile on my face was... Thinking of a dinner you had with your mom and dad, I think back up in Seattle, I think you were out there and there was something or some way you said something to him. Yeah. I just matter of factly said, Hey, you know, that's great, but I have some things that I want to go out and share. Let's talk about those now. That was it. I remember, I remember you telling me about that. I was so proud of you because that was you going, Hey, look, no, I've got an A paper. Yeah. I want to show it to you. I want to put it on my fridge. Yeah. You can do it with it, whatever you want, but I'm putting it on my fridge and I want to talk about it. Yeah. Because totally. I got an A. Yeah. I'm proud of that. Totally. And this was yeah. like you putting it into practice, you taking that risk yeah. of, I'm going to try not letting him get away with this. I'm yeah. going to try being authentic in this moment and see what happens. Yeah. And it was less about what his reaction was and more about how it was for you. Exactly. Because it's all about being courageous. And courageous is not the absence of fear. 
<laughs> it's recognizing the fear, but doing it anyways. Fuck Who said that? that up? I don't know. <laughs> no, really, and yeah. it was because it, it was not uh, something you did without fear. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> right. Totally. You know, and it was still like, I'm a grown ass man and I'm sitting at dinner with my dad and I'm scared and I'm going to say this anyway. Yeah. And then the feeling that you were describing, it wasn't how he reacted to it that I cared about as much as the experience for you of feeling that courage of saying what was true for yeah. you. Yeah. True. Right? Because you wanted to share something that you were proud of. Yeah. It didn't depend on whether or not he acknowledged it or he was proud of it. Yeah. It was the act of sharing it for you that made it so impactful. Yeah. Because it's a voice that previously had been quieted for you and wasn't allowed to come out. Yeah. You, not him, you were allowing yourself to let that voice out. Yeah. Totally. Awesome. Great. Yeah. There's a, and there was a lot of things in that period of time that were great. You know, I had the first four, five years of seeing you was fantastic. It was putting it into practice and it was experiencing it with experiences like that with your dad, certain things at, at work, works, plural, yeah. <laughs> right? girlfriends, plural, <laughs> right? But yeah. it, was, it was letting that voice come out. And I got to see firsthand how your stress level was reducing. Like yeah. you carried it so palpably stress and pressure. I mean, it was that scarcity mentality so much. And fear, totally. you know, it, it's just, I think that's all stress is, right? It's fear manifests. You know, you're fearful that something bad's going to happen. That's why you're worried about it. That's right. why you're stressing. And then to hit as the cliffhanger for the next one, <laughs> I love it. yet I had also some incongruent learned behaviors that were still mm-hmm. hanging out there and wreaking havoc. Yep. <laughs> and uh oh yeah it wasn't all roses yeah, 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 and wonderful yeah. now then i was like oh yeah i'm on the path so i'm just gonna go out and i'll be i should be should be at this <laughs> point right where it's just all better and life should be easy should be this and should be that whatever right and uh it wasn't yep. and so then it left for a lot of dissatisfaction and quite frankly a vicious cycle We are back with you momentarily. Just for a sec. So, wow. Lots of good stuff there. So crazy. This is like, I feel like hearing Drew in 20 years, this is kind of where he would be. (laughs) I hope so. Totally. I'd hope it doesn't take 20 years. Well, right. But if you were 45 or whatever, but it's like already how Drew uses your picks up the vernacular or the concepts and he uses them right away. This guy is coming back you know, seven years later, using your concepts, like spitting them back at you, kind of just saying them even naturally, not even using them as a way to be like, oh, look, Doug, look what I learned. But just like, (laughs) that's the way he talks and what he's thinking about and talking about. I thought I was like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I love it. And and he's somebody that that really took to the CBT work. Yeah, very well did a lot of like restructuring. And it's funny, even at I think you hear it on this somewhere in one of these parts, but even just as I talk to him over the years, whenever he says something like I should, should, you know, yeah. he'll emphasize yeah. that and point to me. Like he he catches a lot of like stuff like that because we've, we've talked about it and it's just his way of thinking about things now. Yep. And I love that he took it on for himself. And, and honestly, like we worked for two years in the beginning, then he took about a year off 
And then he came back in for a tune up and was like, Hey, my actual like intimate relationships, I want to look at that. And I want to look at how I am at work. And right. I want to look at that. And we were able to do that. And we could do that more easily because we had this foundation laid for this stuff. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking when you started talking was again, are you fucking kidding, Doug? Like who are these clients you have that come in? They're so eloquently spoken. They're just like, <laughs> bam, bam, bam. I think like one of the first things he said was, well, what brought me in initially was a physical manifestation that was driven by whatever, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, Fear and anxiety. who says yeah. that though? Yep. Like it was so eloquently put. And I thought to myself, if this is how he sounded in his first session, I'm done. Like, <laughs> come on. I hope this is because it's a seven years of work, but. Oh, totally. I mean, look, this guy was also very insightful from the beginning. I mean, he's somebody that, you know, knew that there was something going on incongruent about his life. There was something off about his life. He knew that. That's And, and I give a lot of credit to people who reach out to see a therapist because what they're saying is I need support. Right. Something's not working right for me. Right. And they want the help. They want to kind of bring this stuff out. And they might not be as eloquent because they might have a lot of shit to deal with. Or they might just not be as eloquent. You don't have to be. To this day, that sentence would never come out of my mouth. <laughs> I'd be like, well, I just feel like sometimes it kind of just like physically, you know, it was amazing. So yeah, like shit's too much sometimes, you know, Yeah, like, yeah, that's fine. You don't have to be eloquent. No, to no, have feelings. not at all. But I just thought, wow, wow, wow. Right. Okay. So now what we're going to hear the, the, all the health stuff that came up, right? Yeah. Cause it, I mean. What's wild is we were on a break from, from treatment and he called me and told me like, oh yeah, you know, I had, I just kind of finished recovering. This was Halloween nights in 2017. From his perspective, he was out jogging and then woke up in an emergency room. It was incredible. He had an, a brain aneurysm and he just fell over. I mean, he just went out and he fell, cracked his jaw, crazy, you know, and was just out of it, had... I mean, he'll tell you the story of like waking up in the hospital, but, right. but it was, it was amazing to hear. And he was, when he was telling me about it on the phone way back then, he was, it was several months after and he had kind of recovered from it. And he was just like, yeah, I mean, that's not why I want to talk to you. I mean, that happened, but why I want to talk to you is just about, you know, just getting a tune up to really come back to my authentic self. And, you know, I'm going through these same patterns with my girlfriend now. I'm like, dude, what? you had some PTSD. <gasps> Like, holy shit, that was a fucking big T trauma. We just talked about that on yep, the table, yep. right? So crazy. Oh my God. The craziness was, so he comes back in, we're talking about his relationships. I'm not pushing the trauma, not pushing, like we need to really process the aneurysm, what happened, but we do get to it and we are working on that. And as he's kind of coming around to that, he has this tumor in his neck and finds out that it's fucking cancer. He has cancer. That's surreal. It's so surreal. And to make it even worse, he gets into a clinical trial at Mayo, like a huge you know, clinic for cancer, like leading research. And when he gets out there to be part of the clinical trial, they tell him, oh, you're actually in the control group, not the <sighs> clinical trial. Oh, I'm like, dude, can't catch a break. Literally. It doesn't really phase him because he just has to go through it all and goes through like chemo. Um, I couldn't talk to him. You'll You'll hear him tell it a little bit that the, the cancer was in his throat. So I, we couldn't do therapy while he was going through it. I mean, granted, when you're going through chemo, you can't pretty much do anything, yeah. but just 
survive. So he did, and he came back. And still coming back, he didn't really have an appreciation for what he had gone through in terms of the trauma. And it was something that he and I started talking about and working on. And he felt like a need to share his story with people, but he really wasn't ready to tell it. It was too loaded for him. He went to South America for a few months, then went out, went camp, like went out to Zion and Bryce in Utah and spent some time out there and really just kind of cleared his head and, and really, uh, this is all pre-pandemic, right. really kind of reaffirmed what's important to him in life. You know, having gone through this aneurysm and cancer and going, wait, how do I want to live? And how am I going to be here? Because it, it was almost all taken away. And he just had such a renewed appreciation for life. And he tells the story of kind of a little bit of what he went through. And man, he credits therapy, but I credit him. I mean, his resilience and his strength to be able to go through this. But it, it was amazing to walk through the cancer bit with, with the client I'm from sure. the diagnosis through the recovery, especially knowing that he had just gone through this horrific aneurysm trauma. So wild. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So you will hear that. And then uh, we'll come back on because we just can't stop talking to you guys. No, love you. <laughs> love you. All right. We'll catch you in a few. Yeah, it's been quite the journey. Really kind of how it started for me was waking up in a hospital bed in Cedar sinai not having any idea where I was, seeing fluorescent lights and hearing bells and ringing noises and hearing people move around, slowly coming to and tasting blood in my mouth and feeling chipped teeth. And it's just a such a wild experience to go through the first couple of days of kind of coming in and out of consciousness, being so out of it and so much pain that I had to be cuffed to my, uh, my bed. It's just the experience of slowly realizing that I had, you know, had an aneurysm you know, while I was jogging, having lost consciousness while running, face planting on the asphalt, being found by a family, picked up by an ambulance, you know, brought to Cedar sinai in the neurological ICU, starting to see family members beside my bed and having no idea why they were there. Yeah, I just went through a couple of days of having bits and pieces of consciousness, bits and pieces of memories, being told by the doctors that I was going to go into three days of the highest risk of me having severe brain damage or death after my surgery. Could you process that when they said that to you, or were you still pretty sedated and out of it? I was sedated to the point that I understood what it was, but I also remember that it seemed an extremely foreign thing. It was more about the seeing everybody around me, my family and my friends and all that visiting me, and how fearful they were that sunk in me a little bit. Yeah, it was just such an experience that it was really scary. It was really painful. But then also it awoken subconscious fighting spirit in me that hmm. I knew I was going to get out of that hospital bed. I knew I was going to walk again. I knew I was going to talk again. Deep in my bones, I just knew it. Looking back on it and remembering the eight days that I spent that I wasn't able to get out of the bed... It was an experience in enduring. For you, it was just what you went through. 
when you think about it now, do you recognize it as something traumatic for you? I do. The trauma from it unfolded over a course of a couple of months. The initial trauma of it, like the triage of being in the ICU and making it through that, yeah, being there for weeks, just the extreme discomfort and fear and yeah, the pain mm-hmm. of going through it. But then also that's where like my body, the like, like you know, subconsciously or whatever, I just went into survival mode. And right. it was, okay, compartmentalize the fear and the pain and discomfort and you'll get through it. And the it seemed like a survival instinct. Being out of the hospital for a little bit, reacclimating back to life a little bit. I guess the biggest long lasting trauma from it was the fear that I now have a brain that can quote unquote pop at any minute. Right. The biggest one is the, the vulnerability and the fragility of how quickly with almost no warning, I could be unconscious and die. Yeah. There's a great book called The Denial of Death. It's the idea that we live in denial of our own impending death, because if we had to recognize it at every moment, chances are we're not going to seize every moment and live this wonderful life. We're going to be petrified. It's not a way that we can sustain living life that way. So we have a healthy denial of death. You can call it avoidant if you want, but sure, we do need to avoid that. We, we can understand it and accept that it's a part of life as that life will no longer be. But what you got to experience was sort of that awakening that, oh, wow, it could go away at any moment. Yeah. Even recounting this right now, I can feel my natural response is like, why are you poking this right now? Keep on denying it. It's a discordant feeling in my brain to turn and focus on, yeah, how close I was to death. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty crazy feeling. So when we started to see each other again, I was just meeting doctor after doctor and doing scan and consultation and, you know, and it's an exhausting thing later and other follow-ups and checkups with my, you know, neurosurgeon and neurologist doctors. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. It's time consuming. In this process, I started to develop a little bit of a, a lump underneath my right chin and jaw. So I didn't really think much about it. I didn't have a whole lot of bandwidth or time or energy or interest in seeing another doctor and dealing with stuff. So like over the next two to three months, I didn't think much about it. My little lump started to grow faster and faster. Then I was like, oh man, I'm back in the process of having to go out and schedule doctor's appointments and wait for consultations and do scans and all that. So I just had a lot of fear with that. For me, it was a multi-week process until the point that finally I went through ultrasounds, MRIs, biopsies, physical examinations on four different appointments, and finally got into a doctor to read MRI and biopsy results to me to tell me that I had tonsil and lymph node cancer. Wow. This is all within the course of like eight months from when my aneurysm happened. I just remember having to walk around the streets around Cedar Sinai and call my family and call my friends and tell them that, you know, the news that I had been just been diagnosed with cancer. A big part of uh, what was so interesting about both of these experiences is that different parts of your brain take over for you. Mm. When I was in the 
barely conscious in the hospital bed after the aneurysm. And there was a part of my brain is like survival instinct kicked in. You're not going to go out and worry about all these needles and tubes and blood and everything around you. You're going to go out and focus on getting out of this bed. Mm. Getting the news about the cancer was, okay, wow, this is scary and this really, really sucks. But you're going to go a part of my brain, part of my psyche kicked in and it's like, okay, what's next? I credit some of my upbringing. I credit working with you to kind of, I guess, maybe helping me to develop the habits and the mindset to not dwell and use the mental energy of why me and complain. But then, yeah, I couldn't catch a break. I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to go through all of this now, intense amount of chemotherapy, intense amount of radiation, and go through what is a really difficult cancer treatment. I had an amazing support system with my family and friends during all this. And my family was, different members of my family were able to go out and spend time with me to go through that chemotherapy and radiation treatment. Yeah, so I had a lot going on. Uh, Move into a different city for two and a half months in Arizona, going through a treatment plan that how it works is that they do it five days a week for six, uh, seven weeks. Every day, it just gets a little bit worse. It was one of those, like like you said, when you went through the the aneurysm, we're in the hospital. That that just fighter mentality, that survival instinct, like just okay, endure. Yep, just endure. And it's the the brain. That's where the the brain does a good job of compartmentalizing. I'm sure a lot of people I, I know, so many people have gone through experiences like this, and it's yeah, you just have to endure it, and you do, and you figure out a way to get through it. Life gets put on pause. Yeah. Uh, and you know, for you as an individual, of just because you're too sick, you're too weak, you're too uncomfortable, and all that, that there's, you just, you figure out ways to pass the hours to get through the day and make it to the next and get through it. You know, oddly, that phrase that you just used, life goes on pause. It's actually the opposite. Everything else went on pause so that the focus could be on life. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to put it. It is. Yeah. We're so fixated on the things and the stuff and the stresses of life that we forget about life. That's a great point. It strips away everything else from life because what you're focusing on is being alive. <laughs> and but but it's a great lesson. And being put in a situation that I think triggered my natural instinct to do that. And so uh, I made it through the seven weeks of treatment. At the end of it, I had lost 25 pounds, hadn't eaten solid food for five weeks, kind of reacclimating back into life. I remember like seeing you, it was having a feeling of, it felt like I came back from like a war, having to compartmentalize that experience. And then afterwards, working to open up those compartments and ultimately address the emotions that you had not been able to go out and feel and address that point. Being presently where I am now and being able to look back on those experiences of going through the aneurysm, the follow-up surgery, cancer surgery, chemo, radiation, scans, and subsequent scares that I've had since you know, finishing my treatment 
I can't appreciate how scary the situations I went through were, but then also just how actually grateful I am for going through the experiences as well because of all the different things that these situations triggered in me that led to personal growth. Really having life educate me time and time again on the only thing we have is the present moment and be grateful for it. Now, as I sit and talk to you seven years later from when we you know, first met, I would never could have imagined how far away I was from who I am right now. But I'm so grateful that I've learned what I've learned and done the work that I've done over the seven years to be the place I am right now. Yeah. When you think back to that, that evolution, how you were, and I hear this a lot from clients, that it's so hard to change. And I see, right, and it's gradual. And there will be a letting go. Sometimes there's even a grief that old part of you goes away. For you, I mean, some of the work that we did early on, a lot of like reshaping, you know, we've talked about it, the ski trails and the, the different pathways and seeing things differently and shifting perspective and finding your integrity and how you want it to be. And then kind of recognizing where it came from. A lot of my upbringing and a lot of, oh, right, it's ingrained in there. Oh, that makes sense. That helped you be compassionate towards yourself. I'm wondering that evolution, it was gradual, but you do have the ability to look back on it now and kind of go, oh, that guy's seven years ago. Where's he? Seven years ago, what led me to reach out to you and want to meet with you in the first place is that I felt like there was a lot of things that I had, a lot of ski trails that I was kept on for whatever reason, skiing down that weren't authentic to me. Right. And I knew it and I recognized it, but I had no idea how to go out and get out of it. Right. I was trying various things and I had the genius idea of binge drinking on Fridays and Saturday nights because I thought that would go out and help. (laughs) I'm joking. Being a real aggressive asshole at work, I was trying to go out and do that. That didn't really work well. I'm joking. Half joking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I did do that. Uh, it It didn't work. Right. It didn't work. I knew I wasn't thinking and behaving in a way that was authentic to me. And over the course of working with you and over the course of some pretty crazy life and health experiences that ultimately were amazing educational experiences for me and spiritual experiences for me have allowed me to, I think, strip away what is not authentic to me. You did a a lot of work to challenge how you were being and what you were doing to do and be different. To that point, it was the, you don't snap your fingers and everything. You're immediately out of the ski trail, right? As much as I wanted to. Yeah, it was the steady, regular work, effort, belief that things would get better and staying at it and not beating myself up if I had felt like I had fallen off the wagon a little bit as it relates to how I was thinking, but getting back to it and, you know, and putting in the work. We've talked about this in, in other ways, that progress isn't always a straight line trajectory going up, that it's, it's jagged and there, there will be ups and downs. And the greatest successes 
come from many failures. A success isn't the one time you did it, it worked. It's all the times that it didn't and how you course correct, as you would say, right? Yeah. And how you endure slash persist and how you remain grateful for the times when it works and the times when it doesn't work. Along those lines, you, you had a narrative for a long time of needing to be better, right? Yep. And not being good enough, needing to be better or the best, right? And, and we've talked about that and how it relates to old issues of I wasn't praised for getting an A. I was told to be quiet so I didn't make my sister feel bad. I think a driving force for you is trying to achieve a level of success and not being satisfied until or unless I got there. How you're describing yourself kind of now and and what you've gone through is just recognizing, I just want to be present. Being present is what it's about, not not achieving the thing, but being here for the thing. Absolutely. And now it's about, well, am I on the the right path? Because I know there's, there's not a destination or there's a series of a million destinations in life. Checking in with myself on a regular basis to go out and see is the path that I'm on. You say authentic, and I always think about it's the when you hit a tuning fork, it rings in a certain way that it's resonate. Yeah, versus something that you bang a I don't know a tin spoon on a tin can and it doesn't sound right. I don't know. Well, it's it's like playing a chord on a piano, and if you play you. one wrong, much key, better. <laughs> yes, like, ooh, that chord that that doesn't sound right, and then you. Correct. And you go, ah, they're, oh, much better. That's the triad. That's what I like. Much better analogy. Yeah. And and I would say it's not just the authentic path, but it's being able to walk whatever path you're on authentically. If you can be on the right path, but you're walking it like a jackass, then okay. You don't get to choose the path a lot of times because shit happens. (laughs) You you, You get cancer. You don't choose that. Yeah, but you then remain authentic to yourself, then it is the authentic path. What makes it authentic in part is you. And a lot of your story is to me one of of your personal growth, being able to live it, recognizing the things that pull you out of it and giving yourself, I would say not free pass, but a compassionate understanding of that and recognizing where you are now and where you're going. When we talked, when you came back from the chemo, you said, I really want to give back in some way. I think you said, I don't really think I have a great story to tell, but I think I have an experience that people could benefit from. And I wonder what it is you want people to to hear or to take away. That even if you're not on the path that you expected to be on, there's such a power in staying present, no matter how difficult things are or painful things are or scary things are, you still have the present moment that you're in. And we all have the amazing capacity to endure. And by enduring and getting through those things, for me, I was able to go out and develop a rich, a much deeper gratitude for the life that I live now, every moment that I'm given. The trick is stay in the moment much as you want to go out and think about and project an hour from now, a day from now, or in the future about what could happen. Could I die? Could I not? Or whatever. What really worked for me is 
course correcting on a regular basis to not go there and keep your mind present and to course correct to remain grateful uh, for whatever you can be grateful for in that moment. And those two things got me through a lot of very scary and difficult times over the past couple of years. I think it's easier for you to talk about being present when you truly are present as your authentic self. Because just being present for something doesn't necessarily mean you're, <laughs> you're living the right life for you. I don't know if we've talked about the term radical acceptance, accepting something wholly and completely as it is without trying to change it or being attached to an outcome or beating yourself up for, well, if I had done this, it would have been different. It would, it's just, it, it, it is. This is, the, this is the path that's unfolding in front of you. You can't change cancer. You can't change the aneurysm. And holding on to how I was before that, okay, that's not who you are now. Yeah. And I think that that term you just shared is, it resonates with me a lot as acceptance, is the not fighting against uh, where you are presently at that moment. It's accepting where you are, being aware of it, and understanding that it is not a permanent thing. When uh, life throws you down a path that you did not expect, that is very scary. And when you do remain authentic to yourself, as you go through that, when you come out of the other end, it's an unbelievably amazing feeling for me. It has been. Yeah. It's also, while you were going through it, part of what's helped you get through and be grateful is that you weren't fighting it. Like we said, you weren't saying, why me? Exactly. I don't have to like it, but it is. It just is. Yep. I can't change that. And when I recognize I can't change that, I can allow it to be what is, and I can accept that and move forward, which you've been able to do. Uh, yeah, acceptance is a really big part of it. I feel like there's just a lot of experiences now where a certain part of my brain or psyche, whatever you want to go and call it, will start doing things, and I get better and better at another part of my brain recognizing that can choose to not necessarily react to, be it being strapped down to a tray and being inserted into a tube that is not a natural thing for a human to be, you know, <laughs> done to, right? That could turn out bad or being late to deliver a work project and not beating yourself up about it because you had a real legitimate rationale for being late on that work project. It's not letting it affect you in the same way. Not internalizing it. Yeah. Right. Like, like you did in, something wrong. Exactly. Yeah. As in internalizing it as I was two days late on delivering a, a work deliverable. Therefore I am a less valuable and good worker. No, I just, other shit came up. I couldn't do it. You know what I mean? Like part of your brain, that negative self-talk, that's just going to go out and do its thing. Just like there's that part of your brain that's going to say, get the fuck out of the CT scan. Right. That's going to happen. Right. And it's, I just get better and better at, okay, high part of brain. I know you're still there. Yeah. Now I can go out and be aware of it and then be much more aware of the fact that I don't need to make it as my identity or my reality. Right. And it's not. I love this, man, because this is, I mean, we spent a lot of time working on this. Yeah. This is you doing it in real time while it's happening and going with it. I mean, it, it, it's the stuff that we talk about in terms of that Vader voice, that critical voice. Sure, it's always going to be there. It'll never go away. 
Yeah. And when I first say that to people, they go, oh, fuck, but I want it to go away. I'm like, it won't. It yes. will always be there, but you will just not pay as much attention to it. It won't rule you. Exactly. It'll be quieter. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And you'll have something else to listen to. Yeah. And that's that Jedi voice that we grow. But it, it really is you kind of taking what we've done, we've talked about, putting it in action in your life. And it's just there. Yeah. And it's having that awareness in the present. Yeah. Is beautiful. I love that how life keeps on presenting opportunities to get better and better at it. There's no plateau that I've reached and I never will. <laughs> and that feels great. I mean, you're smiling this whole time as well yeah. you should, because it's a different way of living. I mean, I it remember is. you many years ago, just stressed the fuck out. Yeah. You know, well before cancer and the aneurysm and all that, you were activated a lot of the time. Oh yeah, right? absolutely. And what you were describing is almost the way to have something localized, not globalized. When we talked about the ski trails and I was like, all right, there's, there's the grooves that you know very well. And then there's looks like the out of bounds over there, yeah. the fresh powder in the tree. You've moved the boulders and the trees. Some of that powder is a little more packed and that's the way you're going now. Yeah. Every once in a while, I fall back into the super shitty, icy ski trails <laughs> yep. that I used to spend way too much time on. <laughs> but then every time I get back to the fresh powder or, the, I don't know, the well-groomed trails or whatever that I'm, uh, the groomers that I get better and better and better at staying on. And that's yeah. why also it's good because I feel like I actually sometimes now relish falling back into the shitty trails Yes, because then I'm getting even better at getting back to the fresh groomers that I want to go out and be on. I love that. The idea being, I can recognize that I'm in a shitty trail, that this is not how I want to go, and I can do something about it. And again, the smile on your face and the nod, you're living this now. Yeah. You know, and relishing like, oh, wait, this is shitty snow. This isn't how I want to get down a mountain. Yeah. Cool. So let me do it this way now. And not panicking if I'm on the shitty snow and the ice. Right. Understanding that, yep, I'm going to have to finish this run, right. and it's super shitty, but I'm not going to freak out, right. panic, have massive amounts of anxiety. I know I bet get back on that chairlift, I can go out and go back up, you know, down the, the trail I want to I want to go down. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I guess the story is something that has been brewing for a while. Yeah, it's something that part of me is like, why even go there? But part of me also is that. I feel like vocalizing where I'm at in my interpretation of that story is going to be valuable. For some people, like going back through traumatic experiences is re-traumatizing. For you, I think it's almost the opposite. It's going to be reaffirming a lot of the work that you've done. And yeah, I see what happened to you as the culmination of a lot of the work that you had been doing. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, you think you've done some work? Boom, here. Yeah. Here, take this. And you're like, yeah. all right, bitch, let's go. And you did, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. And it did give you that transformative experience in your life. Yeah, it did. You know? So I, I, I think that's a very compelling story to walk through for you. Yeah. And we are back. That's some crazy shit that we just heard. Right. Yeah, insane. Yeah. And wow, that is all I can say is wow, what a resilient man, even though I guess that wasn't 
his thought at the time when he was going through it, but clearly. I think he's getting to the point now where he, he can appreciate what he went through and how he went through it. He's also, he's not just resilient. I, I think he's just very now well-adjusted, even keeled, balanced, appreciative, grateful. I mean, all those things. He's, he's really, I'm very pleased to have been a part of the journey with him because it, it's really, you know, it's a cliche when a therapist says it's an honor to take this journey with you. But I really yeah. feel that about him because he went through so much and did it so well. And you hear these stories about these people that go through these things and you just think, oh my God, how did they do that? How did they do that? Well, I know right. how he did it because I, I helped him. I was there for it. I saw it. Right. I mean, he really did really challenge the way his his mind was patterned and was thinking. And he thinks of things so much more authentically now. And it's wonderful. I mean, I, I really think he's a fantastic guy. Yeah. And he said, even he said, looking back now, he can appreciate how scary the situations were and how grateful he was for going through those tough situations because everything that triggered him created so much personal growth. And then right. I think he said something like life educated him. And I was like, wow, look at that. Yeah. It's, it's cool. Early on in some of our work, you know, he loved the ski trail analogy, which Drew Yeah, he brought too. that up a couple of times. Right. Yeah. And he's something that was very big for him. He, he would say it a lot during treatment was course correcting. Oh yeah. He brought that up too. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Go ahead. So now I'm asking you about that. Yes. <laughs> so he, so he brought up course correcting on a regular basis and I would like to know, please tell us about that. Yeah. I love this because it's, it's recognizing when you veer off course, when you act a little bit outside of your integrity, or, I mean, you've heard me say, I love when clients feel guilty because that, right. that's a roadmap to your integrity. You acted outside of how you want to act. That means you know how you want to act. So we can course correct and get back to that. And we do it without beating ourselves up. Right. We do it with compassion. We do it knowing, all right, something must have triggered me or something must have happened. And now I think he said something like, I, I even relish those opportunities where I can get back on the fresh powder or the groom, the fresh groom, like instead of skiing down this icy path. Right. To me, that's, that's in Buddhism, there's something about, there's two different sects. One saying that you have one enlightenment, one awakening. And once you're there, you experience you know, nirvana and that's it, you're done. The other says, no, no, you have many awakenings along the way. Again, the first sect would say, well, then they're not real. Mm -hmm. To me, of course they're real. We just need right. reminders all the time. That's why we're able to course correct and why we're able to have awakenings. It's, it's, I think, super, super hard, nearly impossible to be woke all the time, 24-7, embodying your Zen yes. Buddha nature. Like, no way, man. I don't think even like the Dalai Lama would say that's possible. I love using him. <laughs> I know you do. Love. Right? That's, to me, one of the joys of, of this ride that we're on is that we get to be human. You know, we get to be totally. fallible and imperfect. And we get to experience sadness as well as joy. We get to be mad as well as loving and caring. You know, all of these things. We can have that as long as we own it and recognize that we're having it. Yeah. And you, at one point you asked him what he wanted to give back and what he wanted people on the podcast to hear and take away. And I think what he said, something was, if you're not on the path you expected to be on, which by the way, <laughs> all of us, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry I, saw, I saw something that some meme that said, for those of you, I think it was in 2015, when you said where you 
plan to be in five years, <laughs> all your answers were wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for all of us right now who uh, are on the path we did not expect to be on, because look where we are. Right. That there's such a power in being present, no matter how difficult or painful or scary things are, right. that knowing that we have the capacity to endure and then by enduring and getting through that we can develop this gratitude for life. And I thought like, yeah, that's freaking powerful. Yeah. I, I think that's huge. And that's, it's something, you know, even he and I were saying right at the end there that it's not that your path is authentic. It's that you're walking authentically on whatever path you're on. Mm -hmm. You know, like he was saying like, yeah, you can't control it. I couldn't control getting cancer, but I can control how I went through it. Yeah. You threw out the radical acceptance, which he yeah, really liked. Right. I knew you'd like that yeah. too. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, if you're not fighting what is, you're going to be a lot happier. When you fight what is, it's going to lead to unhappiness, right? If you right. can just accept what is as what is, doesn't mean you have to like it. Totally. You can't always make it different. I mean, it's so weird. And I think he was trying early, like to know him seven years ago, he really was clinging to control, like trying to control things, control people's reactions, which we all do, I think, a lot too much. And right. trying to control yeah. himself and changing himself so that he would get the right reactions from people. Yep. And it's just, it's not authentic. And, and when you get back to, and you course correct, that authentic self, then it's not about correcting the actual path you're on. It's about correcting how you're walking whatever path you're on. Exactly. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. I dig it. Good one, Doug. Thanks. I mean, I, I, he did a lot of good work. I, I mean, I, I take some credit for guiding him along the way, but it really was the work that he put in. And same with Drew. You know, the work that he is doing is, is phenomenal. Totally. You know, I mean, he's, he's really, really challenging himself and thinking about this. And, you know, to answer a question you always ask me, Meredith, not all of my clients are like this. You know, yeah. some of them, we might be working for a couple of years, but we've laid so much groundwork, then they'll start getting it. Then they'll start doing that stuff. I mean, that's yeah. the one, uh, I think it was a, a, an Instagram post that I read on here on air about the guy that was in therapy for two years and then told his therapist everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's hard, but once you feel comfortable, you can let this stuff out and the stuff that you hide and that you compartmentalize. He even said this, he was getting to open up these compartments and let this stuff out. That's when you understand yourself and you have more agency and choice about how you live. Yeah. And this is all so much easier said than done. And it's none of this is, I mean, this is all complex and crazy difficult. And I think though it does show, you know, there's so much scientific proof that attitude does affect a lot of things and a lot of diseases and a lot of healing and, oh, you know, sure. trying to, no matter what you're going through, again, easier said than done. I can't put myself in his shoes, but somehow powering through and having ups and downs. But at the end of the day, I'm sure it's quite easy to say like, fuck it. Why me? You know, this sucks. Yeah. And trying to take the opposite path for him obviously made a big difference. And sometimes he didn't really get much of this, but I think we, we gave him permission to, he just wasn't compelled to, but sometimes with what we're going through, especially during pandemic and, and whatever's going on right now, you just want to pull the covers over your head. Yeah. You just want to like stay on the couch and watch TV and <laughs> eat combo meals. <laughs> you know? Or buttered popcorn. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And totally. Yeah. I think that's okay too. You know, Absolutely. I, I, 
I've had plenty of clients that will disappear into a video game or a mm -hmm. TV series or movies or weed or alcohol, you know, whatever you're using, you know, if you're not using something that's detrimental to your health, you know, but you're using something that's going to help you endure something or avoid something for that moment. Yeah. That's what we need. Exactly. You can deal with loss or grief or pain, do it for a couple of days, a week, whatever, however long you need. And then let's come back around and not sit in it for too long. Right. And that's, uh, <laughs> you love when I throw these out. Rumi said, <laughs> the way to get through pain is in the pain. Oh, good old Rumi. So smart. Yep. We think it's to avoid it or anything, but it's going into it. That's yeah. the double down, don't shut down. That's the the go to the thing. And we we fear the thing so much, but when we actually get to it and can open the compartments and bring it out, that's where we heal. And that's that's how totally. we can, I think, live a more free life. Yeah. It's just getting there. It's not that again, it's definitely not that simple, but it is doable. It's possible, as evidenced by Wyatt here. I'd love to hear how it's doable for you and your clients. Well, maybe you will. Uh-oh, teaser? Uh-oh, possibly. Maybe you'll hear a client or two of mine on here soon. That's Just a right. little snippet, <laughs> possibly, maybe. It's in the works. We'll it's in the we'll works. See. We'll see what happens. But yeah, we're, we're gearing up for starting season two of Drew. And uh, before that, who knows? You might hear one of Meredith's clients. You might not. We never know. Never know. But you'll definitely hear us. And uh, we love hearing from you guys. So let yeah. us know what's going on for you. Yourmentalbreakdown.com or all the social medias. We're on all of them, right? <laughs> all of them. I think maybe not Snapchat. Is Snapchat still going? Oh, yeah, my friend. Wow. I bought stock in Snapchat and I'm killing it. Really? Yep. Nice. Now you're all going to buy it and then it's going to go up even more. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right, guys. So we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye.